As you're taking your seats, I want to invite you to grab your Bibles and open them up to the book of Acts, chapter 10. I wonder if you're the kind of person that likes to look at things, complex things, and ask the question, I wonder how that works. Maybe you're one of those people, um, and you know who you are, you just have to figure it out. It will eat away at you if you don't figure out how something works. Maybe it's something mechanical, maybe it's something electronic, maybe it's something technology-wise, that you just have to figure it out. And some of you are very good at this, you're very gifted at this, you have this inherent desire to find out how things work, and you love to know how things work so that you can fix things. You're a, you're a big fixer, right? You, can, uh, you become like a jack of all trades, there's nothing you can't figure out, nothing you can't handle, and I'll just be flat out honest with you, I praise God for people like you because I am nowhere close to that kind of a person. And maybe you're like me, maybe you look at things and it doesn't even cross your mind how they work. You're just thankful that they do work, and you're thankful that there are people out there who care about how they work so that they can fix the things that you have when they break down, and you don't have to do it yourself. Many of us kind of live like that, don't we? We love that other people know how things work so that they can be the people who fix what needs to be fixed, and we don't need to fix everything, or some of us, anything. We just like knowing that we can place a phone call, get on the internet, find somebody who can. And I would suggest to you that in today's day and age, that's fine. That's actually a really beneficial thing for many of us in this time in history, And it's fine in most areas of life to operate like that. You don't have to become an expert in everything. You don't have to be the one that has to fix everything. But it's not fine in some areas of life. There are some areas of life we actually have to find out how something works because we're required to fix it ourselves and we can't be dependent upon somebody else. And I would suggest to you that in the Christian life, it is essential that we understand how things work, especially when it comes to evangelism and salvation. Many Christians live the Christian life content to leave that up to somebody else. Maybe it's a pastor or maybe it's somebody who does this and and, and is really more effective at it. And so many Christians never take the time to really ask the question, how does salvation work? How does evangelism actually work? How has God designed it to work? Because they think it's somebody else's responsibility. But when we look at the scriptures, what we see is this. Evangelism is everybody's responsibility if you call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ. It's something God calls you to. It's not a responsibility you can shirk, you can give away to somebody else that you can simply delegate. It's something you need to own. It's something you need to embrace. And so it's something you need to understand. Maybe you wrote a name down last week, and one of the things that you have been wrestling through even this week is trying to figure out how this is going to work. I I get it, you're saying, Ian, I get it, I'm called to get out and to go and share the gospel of Jesus Christ, but I really still feel inadequate, I feel insufficient, I don't quite understand how it all works, maybe I can just leave that up to somebody else, maybe if I just pray really hard that God would use somebody else instead of me, you know, kind of, I can still fulfill my obligation or, or what God, I believe, has laid on my heart, but I can let somebody else do the heavy lifting. Well, I want to 
look at God's word this morning, and in Acts chapter 10, we're picking up the second half of the story. Remember, Peter has seen God divinely preparing himself and this man named Cornelius, and now we see Peter who is really standing with a captive audience, getting ready to share the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we can look at Peter, and we can learn so much from Peter's example, but I I think we see really predominantly in this passage of scripture how salvation works, how God has designed it to work so that we might have confidence when we go out into the world to share this good news of Jesus Christ. Like I said, remember, God has divinely orchestrated this opportunity. He's taken this man Cornelius and he's used an angel to give this man a picture of what God wants to do in his life. He needs to go and send for this man named Peter. He gives him very explicit instructions where to find him. Peter, meanwhile, is praying on top of his roof, uh, the Simon the Tanner's roof, and he sees this vision from God. And you remember, if you were here last week, this sheet comes down from heaven with all these unclean animals, and God says, Peter, rise, go, kill, and eat. Peter begins to understand what this vision is all about, and as he stands right now in the house of Cornelius, he's surrounded by all of Cornelius' family. It's a beautiful picture of how Cornelius loves the people around him. He wants them to hear the truth, and they're waiting. They're waiting for somebody to share with them the good news that they've been longing to hear, and Cornelius says this, now therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So let's start there. Let's start there, and let's see in this text, beginning in verse 34, how salvation works. And the first thing I want you to see is this. It works first and foremost through the mercy of God, through the mercy of God. Peter says in verse 34, so Peter opened his mouth and said, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Peter begins where every faithful proclaimer of the gospel needs to begin, with an understanding of the gospel itself and the nature of the mercy of God and the grace of God that flows through the gospel. The starting point, in other words, is an inner acknowledgement and embracing of the very mercy of God. You see, Peter's finally come to this understanding that God is saving not only Jews, but he's saving Gentiles as well. And if you were here last week, you remember that there was this incredible barrier between the Jews and the Gentiles that needed to be abolished, that needed to be utterly destroyed and torn down. It was unfathomable for a Jew to have any kind of fellowship with a Gentile. They saw them as unclean, and here's what you need to see in that. They saw them as being unworthy of God's kindness and favor. You see, the Jews at this point in history were very partial to who they believed God loved and cared about. They thought God loved only them. They wanted all the blessings for themselves, and everybody else was cast off from God and didn't have a hope in the world, but God had other plans. In fact, if you read the Old Testament, you see from the very beginning to the end, God always had this plan. And this incredible barrier needed to be overcome. And here, I love what Peter finally understands. And you have to remember, this is a, a, what we would call, in some ways, a mature Christian at this point in the life of the church. He had lived with Jesus for three years. He had heard Jesus speak truth and love and show compassion to all people. He had had 10 years as being one of the primary leaders in the church. 
And yet we see he's still a man in progress, a man who is growing in his understanding and knowledge of the love of God, of the compassion of God, and of the mercy of God. Be careful if you think you've arrived in the Christian life. And the one thing he gets through this whole experience, through the vision he has, through the divine providence and sovereignty that God is working in this situation is that God shows no partiality. He accepts all people. Now that's not accepting all people irrespective of what they believe. It's accepting all people irrespective of where they live, of their nationality, of their ethnicity, of any kind of distinctions. This isn't kind of a carte blanche, you get to believe whatever you want and God embraces you into his family. No, this is just saying that there's nobody, there's no barriers to being loved by God and embraced by God, being embraced by God. He shows, in other words, the word is this, no favoritism. That's how that word can be translated, no partiality, no favoritism. In other words, he's an impartial judge. Literally, the word means this, it means, uh, it suggests, sorry, in its original form that he is not swayed by a person's face. It gives this kind of a word picture. Have you ever heard the phrase, you know, God is no respecter of persons? God doesn't look at people and say, wow, you look really good and you've really cleaned yourself up and you know what? You've kind of earned my favor because of how you've lived, because of where you're from, because of, you know, kind of who you are. You're really worthy of my love. That's not the way God looks at people. He doesn't look at anybody like that. God has no respecter of persons, but I, I wonder, listen, I wonder if we really believe that, even as followers of Christ. See, we may imagine that there is something about us that will persuade God to make an exception. You know, may, maybe God will look deep down in my heart and he'll say, you know what, that person really does have a good heart. I know they've had all this sin and they've caused all this damage and destruction, but you know what, deep down, they're really a good person. Or maybe we, we imagine that somehow God will look at our intelligence and think, wow, this person's so wise and I could really use this person and so I need them uh, in my plan of salvation. Or we look at our position in life and we think, well, certainly, certainly God couldn't do without me. Or we look at the many acts of kindness, our morality, and all the things that we've done, and we think somehow that God would make an exception for us. We look at God's mercy and grace and think maybe, maybe we actually deserve it. The very understanding of mercy is this, that God does not give us what we deserve. And grace, the flip side of that is this, is that God gives us what we do not deserve. And we understand that. We talk about grace like this. God, uh, in grace, he gives us unmerited favor, unearned favor. It's freely lavished upon us. There's nothing we can do to earn it from God. He just gives it to us. That's why it's grace. But I just want you to hold on to that, that thought of favor for a second. You see, I think in one sense, in our hearts and minds, it's very easy and it's one small step to move from favor to favoritism. God has shown us no favoritism. In fact, he hasn't shown anybody favoritism, and it is precisely because he does not show favoritism that we need his favor. It's precisely, do you, do you get that? It's precisely that you can't earn God's favor that you need his unmerited favor. That's the only way that anybody 
could ever become a Christian. If he showed favoritism, we wouldn't be saved at all. Christian, listen to that for a second. If he showed favoritism, we wouldn't be saved at all, and no one would. By the way, that's Paul's argument throughout the first few chapters of the book of Romans. He's looking at the Jew and the Gentile, and he's looking and he's, he's trying to build this case for, listen, the Jews have no merit before God. They're not righteous. They've sinned against God. They're deserving of punishment. And then he turns the corner to the Gentiles, and he says, and in one sense, look, they're in the exact same boat as the Jews. They're unrighteous, right? They're, they're not worthy. In fact, listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, verse 6, he says this. He says, He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Listen to that. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek or the Gentile. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. And listen, for God shows no partiality. That's what he says here. And maybe you're looking at that and you're saying, well, God's going to reward us for being good, right? He's talking about good works. But, but Paul goes on to make it very clear in chapter 3 that there is none righteous, no, not one. No one does good works. There is no one who is worthy. There is no one who could erase their sin that they've already committed. No matter how many good works you have, it will never erase, it will never take away the sin that you have accumulated in your life. So both Jews and Greeks stand condemned, and in that, God shows no partiality either, right? They're both condemned. In fact, the whole world is condemned before God because of sin. The only hope we have is the mercy of God. And so, listen, here's this by, by implication here. Since God shows no favoritism towards anybody, neither should we. The gospel who is, is for all who will come to Jesus Christ but it begins with recognizing how undeserving you are. See, you'll never share the gospel the way you ought to. You'll never go out and reach people who maybe are uncomfortable for you to reach, maybe people that you have in the past resisted kind of connecting with or rubbing shoulders with. You'll never get there until you realize the mercy that God has shown to you. A pastor in the 20th century named Harry Ironside told a story of his father. His father was lying on his deathbed. And as his father lay dying, he was muttering under his breath some words, and, and as the people around the bed listened in, they, they understood that he was actually muttering the words of Scripture from this very passage. He's muttering the vision that Peter had of the sheet coming down, and he's trying to remember the animals and the things that were there on this great sheet, and so he's saying under his breath, they're the wild beasts. And, 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 and he starts to stutter and he can't finish it. He can't find the right word. And one of his friends, his dear friends who is around the bedside says to him, John, and quoting the ESV, or the, excuse me, the KJV says, John, it says the creeping things. And he says very clearly, oh yes, that's how I got in. Just a poor, good for nothing, creeping thing. But I got in saved by grace. I love that. Isn't that true? 
It's not true for every one of us, right? When you get this, listen, when you get this, it changes everything. When you see yourself not as the clean, not as the worthy, not as the deserving, not as the one who could earn it, but as the unclean, as the one who doesn't deserve it, as the one, in fact, who deserves punishment from God. When you see yourself not as the attractive beast, but the mangy, filthy mutt, When you see yourself not as the beautiful bird, but the creeping, crawling thing that inches along the ground. And when you see yourself as that creepy thing, by the grace of God, placed on the sheet and pronounced clean, and listen, just let me just say that again, only by the sheer, amazing, beautiful grace of God have you been placed on that sheet. Then you're ready to open your heart and arms to other people. It won't make any difference who they are. It won't make a difference what their ethnicity is, their nationality. It won't make a difference, you know, their social economic status. It won't make a difference what kind of sin they've struggled with or they're struggling with. It won't make a difference at all because you will see who you truly are before God and you'll notice that God shows no favors. And if any of you are really struggling with this, I would just suggest to you, go home today, look in the mirror, remember who you were, and then say these words, God, if you saved me, the gospel must be for everyone. God welcomes any sinner that comes to him. And God has been working in this man's heart. In every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. God will work in any person's heart. God will lead them to the truth. And then secondly, you need to see this. So salvation works first through the mercy of God. Secondly, it works through the message of Christ. It all begins with God's mercy. He doesn't have to, you know, some people really wrestle with this and they say, you know what, it's not fair that God would save some people and not others. And, and the answer that we always give, and I've said this so many times before, is this, you don't want what's fair. You don't want what's fair. If God gives you what's fair, if God gives you what's just and what's right, then nobody makes it. Nobody gets into heaven. Nobody. It is only by the grace and mercy of God. Amen? That is the only way. But it happens, listen, in the mercy of God, he then works through the message of Christ. Verse 36, it says this, as for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching, listen to this, I love this, good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all, throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him, and we were witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him up on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead." Luke gives us a summary of Peter's message. You have to remember, as we were going through the book of Acts, very often what Luke does is he doesn't give us a word-for-word account of the entire message that's been preached. He gives us kind of a summary. Gives us kind of the, the main points, the highlights, if you will. But I love this. Remember, there's an eager audience here. I mean, every preacher loves to preach to a crowd like this. I mean, they're gathered. I mean, they've had to tell him, hey, we're here. We're waiting for you. If you could do that every once in a while on Sundays, that would be awesome. (laughs) 
And they're hungry for the truth. They want to know, their hearts are aching to know why they've been created, who has created them, and the purpose and meaning that they can find if they know that one. It's helpful to note that he's preaching to Gentiles here. Remember that. But the content of the message is essentially the same as if he were preaching to Jews. And so let me just refresh your memory as to why that is. Remember that Cornelius is described as a God-fearer. He's a man who's not Jewish, he's a Gentile, but he's kind of almost there. He's adopted the Jewish faith, he's embraced it. The only thing he's unwilling to do, and some people would argue for good reason, is circumcision. He's, he's waited, and he's, he's kind of there. He understands the Jewish faith. He's been teaching and instructing his family. Uh, he's a faithful kind of follower of the Jewish faith. That, that's, that's what we have right here in this man. He knows a lot already of the Jewish customs, of the Jewish law. He's been immersed in it. And so Peter here can speak to him as a man who's well acquainted with the Jewish faith. He's on the right path, but listen, he's not saved yet. So how do you know he's not saved? I mean, a lot of people look at this and say, well, surely Cornelius is saved. He just needs that kind of final piece of the puzzle to kind of, kind of put everything together. But listen to what Peter says in Acts chapter 11. Look at verse 13 with me. Here's Peter. He's explaining what had happened. And here's his account of what had happened. And it says, and he told us, he's referring to the vision, or excuse me, um, uh, Cornelius' vision in verse 13. He told us how he had seen the angels stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon who is called Peter. And notice this, verse 14. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. So, so right now, that's important because right now we have a man who is kind of, he's on the right path. He's heading towards salvation, but he's not quite there yet because what is required of salvation is the clear message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. No one is saved apart from the message of Jesus Christ. It's important to recognize that because as we look at Cornelius, we look at a man who is called a God-fearer, we look at a man who's done some really incredible things, motivated by the right things, even desiring in his heart to please God, but it's, it's helpful just to remember this, that well-meeting motives don't get anybody into heaven. There are so many people, listen, another religious, with other religious uh, beliefs, walking different religious paths, who believe that just because they're sincere about what they believe, and many of them, listen, I really believe this, many of them genuinely believe they're serving God and they're honoring God, does not mean they will be saved. In fact, we know from Scripture that no matter how well-intentioned and how well-meaning they are, they cannot be saved apart from faith in Jesus Christ. All roads, listen, all roads do not lead to the top of the mountain. He needed to hear the message of Christ. He was primed for it. I love, he was so primed. Remember who did the priming? God did. God has been working in this man's heart. God has been working through the sovereign or the circumstances of his life to get him ready to hear. And we call this, one of the phrases we use is this, this is low-hanging fruit, right? I mean, this is a ripe apple. This is red apple evangelism. I mean, he's just ready to be picked. He's gonna fall off the tree. Peter just has to give a little blow with his breath and the apple will fall and hit the ground. This is amazing. Don't we wish all evangelism just worked like this? Like just everybody was just so primed, all we gotta do is start talking and boom, just saved, saved, saved. As Peter speaks, what's so helpful to see here 
is that what he speaks is, is just such a simple and basic gospel. And I just want to encourage you with that. Sometimes we think that we have to have all the right answers. Sometimes we think that we just need to know all the complex details of theology before somebody would ever get saved. But what we see here in Peter is this, a very simple explanation of the fundamental components of the gospel. And that is more than enough. It is more than enough. It begins like this. Notice what it says in verse 36. It is good news of peace through Jesus Christ. The word gospel means good news. And it is fundamentally, at the very start, you need to recognize this, it is good news of peace. You see, not only does God show you mercy and grace by receiving you, he makes peace with you. In fact, he cannot receive you, he cannot embrace you until he makes peace with you. You can't have a relationship with God without him making peace with you. Not one of blessing, not one of joy, But here we're reminded by Peter that you can have a relationship with God where he ceases to be your enemy, where he ceases to be your judge, and instead he becomes your savior and he becomes your friend. And you need to believe this here this morning. You need that. You desperately need that. You need the God of this universe to be your friend instead of your enemy. You need the God of this universe to be your savior instead of your judge. Humanity as it stands is not at peace with God. Regardless of what they think, regardless of how they feel, humanity, the Bible makes very clear, is not at peace with God. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 1, verse 18. Tell me if this sounds like peace to you. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness righteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. In chapter 2, verse 5, he says it like this. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. All of humanity lies in this condition. They lie in this condition, listen, not kind of neutral with God. That's what a lot of people believe. A lot of people believe, well, I'm kind of walking this neutral ground with God, and when I get to God, I'll kind of figure things out then. When I'm standing in the presence of God, I'll figure out my relationship with God. The time to get right with God is not when you're standing in front of God. Let me just make that as clear as I can. It's right now. It's right now. If you were to stand before the almighty creator of the universe right now, and if you stand apart from Jesus Christ, you stand justly condemned. You stand right now, if you are not in Christ, you need to hear this. You stand with the wrath of God abiding over you and all of your unrighteousness, all of your rebellion, all of your impenitent hard heart, your rejection of God, what it's done, it has accumulated more and more wrath and you are storing this wrath up like a, a massive storehouse and one day if you die in your sin apart from Jesus Christ, you will stand in front of the creator and you will face the torrent of his wrath poured out upon you for all of eternity. You say, that sounds really scary. It is terrifying. It is horrific. And it is, even if you think, well, that, that's, that really sounds scary, it is so much worse than you could ever imagine. And we don't talk about hell lightly around here. We don't talk about the wrath of God lightly. And if you're a Christian and you hear, if you're hearing these words and it's falling on your heart and not affecting you in any way, you need to pray that God right now, he just gives you a, such a, a sincere compassion for lost people who will suffer for eternity in hell. We grow cold to these things. 
this is a reality that every moment of every day there are people dying and meeting their creator who will be punished forever in hell because they refused to submit to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you have not believed in Jesus Christ for your salvation, you are not okay with God and he is not okay with you. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus came to make peace with you. He came to make peace. When when you weren't seeking peace, when you weren't trying to establish any kind of peace with him, he came to you and he said, listen, you're the offending party. I want to make peace with you. This is the God of love that we serve. This is the God of grace and mercy that we serve. And while his wrath and hostile judgment stands over you, the enmity can be removed. His anger can be mitigated and turned to mercy. Judgment can become blessing. And this only happens, he says here, through Jesus Christ. There is no other way. He is, and I love this, in parenthesis, this should be in all caps and bold, right? He is Lord of all. That is a powerful, powerful statement. He is Lord of all. He is ruler of all. He has supreme authority to judge. He has supreme authority to reign and to rule. All of creation is his. That's the point. It's not yours. It's not mine. It's his and his alone. And he goes on to explain the life and ministry of Jesus. And he says to him, look, look, we saw it all. We saw it all. Look at verse 37. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. So you saw it. You saw, I mean, you've been around long enough, Cornelius. He knows Cornelius knows what happened. Everybody knew what happened to Jesus at this time. It was no secret. The fame of Jesus spread throughout the land. He was healing people, right? He was showing compassion. He was casting out demons. He was speaking and teaching as one who had authority. Crowds flocked to Jesus. You know this Jesus, and you know the story of John, the one who came before Jesus. You know how he came and he was baptizing people. You remember that baptism that John proclaimed? He came declaring a baptism of repentance. He came, John came as a forerunner to Jesus Christ, and he looked at the nation of Israel who was living in rebellion to God, and he said, look, look, the Messiah is about to come, and we need to get ready And we need to get our hearts ready. We need to get into a position of humility. We need to understand that we have rejected God. We have pushed away from him, but God is coming in his grace for us. And so let us get our hearts ready. Let us be baptized as a symbol of our corporate unity and repentance. Recognition that we have sinned. You remember John saying that he was simply preparing the way for the one who was greater than him, the one he was not even worthy to untie his sandals? Verse 38, you know of Jesus, he says to him, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Remember when John baptized Jesus? You remember when his ministry began? When you heard all about this, you heard the people talking about it, how God spoke from heaven, this is my beloved son whom I love, and the words I love what Matthew says, listen to him. 
You heard all about his life. You heard all about his ministry. You saw his authority. I think that's so much of of what's happening here. Here, Peter wants to establish this concept that Jesus is Lord of all. Don't you remember? He's the one who controlled the wind and the waves. He controlled all of nature. He had authority over everything. Don't you remember? He had authority even over sickness and disease. He had authority over death. He raised Lazarus from the dead. He had authority over the demons. Even the the demons believe in Jesus and shudder. I mean, there was nothing in all of creation he didn't have authority over. And the whole point is this. If he has authority over all of this, he should have authority over you too. He's appealing to the way that God had appointed Jesus through that anointing of the Holy Spirit. He gave him the Holy Spirit and power. The two things are synonymous And it was clear and evident that God was with him, that God had anointed him, that God had commissioned him, that he was the divine messenger of God. And that term, Lord of all, is a statement of his deity. He he doesn't just have the authority. He has the authority because of who he is. He is God himself. And then in verse 39, he's like, you know, you saw saw the way he handled the, the diseased and the devil Because God was with him, but look at verse 39. The greatest display of his authority and his power was seen in his death and resurrection. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him up on the third day and made him to appear. I mean, Cornelius knew this. He he knew what the Romans did to Jesus. Of course he did. He's a soldier. Right here, as Peter explains or rehashes the crucifixion of Jesus, the horrific death of Jesus, you can imagine that Peter majored on this point right here. You can imagine he, he stopped here and he began to explain this with greater depth because this here is the very heart of the gospel. Without the death and resurrection of Jesus, there is no hope for sinners. Cornelius was familiar with the symbolism, right, of the Jewish sacrifices. He had seen the temple sacrifices. He had read the Torah likely, or at least sat under the teaching of the Torah. He knew that the sinner would take an innocent animal. He would bring it to the priest, and he would have it killed. And then he would go away knowing that an innocent had died in the guilty one's place. He knew that this system was in place. But certainly he knew that an animal could not take away, take away his sin. Not really. An animal couldn't be sufficient payment for my sin. It was only pointing towards something greater that could actually complete that action, that transaction, that could actually make full payment. An animal couldn't do it. That's why they kept the system going. That's why day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, they continually brought sacrifices into the temple, slaughter another one, slaughter another one, slaughter another one. The blood is everywhere. Sin has not been completely dealt with yet. That constant perpetual reminder that something must die for sin, that we deserve death because of sin, and that something must take our place. The wages of sin is death, Paul said. It's it's what it's earned. An eternal punishment for sin. An animal couldn't be sufficient payment for that. They were waiting on one who would come, who would be of infinite worth, 
of infinite value who could make a sufficient payment. And listen, because Jesus is God, He is infinite. He is of supreme value. He is of eternal value. His death had an inexhaustible value. And we believe He could absorb our infinite penalty because of His infinite value. And He is the only one who could do that. That's what he says in verse 40, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. You know, all apostolic preaching zeroes in on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You can't read the book of Acts without seeing that every time they talk about the gospel, one of the things they major on above all is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why? Why is that? Why is the resurrection so important? Why isn't it enough that Jesus simply died? Well, the resurrection is the definitive evidence that the payment made for sin was accepted. It's the statement that God makes that the payment for sin has been received. Listen, you can think of it like this. If Jesus is dead right now and he never raised, then we are still dead in our sins. And there is no hope for us. I mean, that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, he says, and if Christ had not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If Christ didn't rise from the grave, listen, then there was no sufficient payment made. You still owe the payment for your sins and you will pay that for eternity. But the good news is, and what Peter wants to reinforce, is that he is actually alive. And because he's alive, our sin is paid in full. Our debt debt is wiped out entirely. We can be washed clean. And he wants to make it clear that this isn't, you know, back in in this time period, a lot of people were saying, well, he didn't really rise from the dead. Or, or, Or there were people suggesting that it wasn't a real resurrection. It wasn't a physical resurrection. It was somehow some kind of a spiritual resurrection only. That Jesus, you know, didn't actually physically come to life. It was some kind of a, a ghost that people were seeing. They tried to explain it away, but here Peter wants to make it very clear that that's not the case. He rose from the dead, and here's how we know. We witnessed it. We saw him, and we ate and drank with him. Ghosts don't eat and drink, okay? We touched him. We felt him. We had conversations with him. We did life with him. He made us fish on the sea. It was awesome. It's real, he says. This is not some made-up myth. Cornelius couldn't be saved by being well-meaning, good-intentioned, even fearing God. He needed the clear, simple, life-giving message of Jesus Christ. He needed to know that there was one who could take him in his spiritual death, and there was someone who could conquer death, there was someone who could pay for his sins in full, and then there was someone who could give him new life in himself. And that person, very clearly, is Jesus Christ alone. Salvation works through the message of Christ. There is no salvation apart from this clear message of Jesus Christ. So Christian, let me encourage you, know it. Soak in it. Love it. And if you're an unbeliever today, you need to see that this is the only message that will save you. It is only if there is one who can pay for your sin. It is only if there is one who could overcome sin and death. 
And since it comes in the form of a message, you need to see this, that salvation works through the method of proclaiming, proclamation. God gives the message, and he gives it very clearly, but then he calls people to actually share that message. If nobody can be saved apart from hearing the message, it requires that messengers are sent. Church, that's you and me. Salvation comes only when people hear. Paul, we saw this last week, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? And the whole point of this story is to remind us that somebody needs to go and tell them. You tell them. You tell them, you, you, those names there, right? Those are the names that we've been praying for. Those are the names that God has laid on your heart. And there are only one or two or five or however many you wrote down of many, many people whom God is preparing right now to hear the message of good news of peace with God. And he's preparing them to hear it from you. You tell them that Jesus is alive. You tell them that the one they condemned is the one who will ultimately condemn them unless they turn to him. I want you to see here how Peter describes this nature of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 42. He says, and he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. You go tell them that God actually has given this one the authority to be their judge. Listen, he's given them the authority to be their jury, and he's given them the authority to be their final executioner. You go tell them that once they die, it's appointed for man to die once, then comes judgment. It's a scary thought to think that so many people who have condemned Jesus and written him off will one day be condemned by him. And this is commanded, by the way, to be preached. Do you see that there? He commanded us to preach and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge. We so often are fearful of telling people about the judgment of God, aren't we? We're so, you know, we want to be sensitive and we, we kind of want to tiptoe around the reality that there is sin and a hell. And, and so maybe if we just kind of move those away and focus on the really nice parts of the gospel, you know, it'll be, a, first of all, a lot easier and maybe they'll actually embrace it quicker. But the truth of the matter is this, we are commanded to tell people that unless they repent of their sins and turn to God through Jesus Christ, they will face the great judge of the universe. There is a warning in the gospel that is essential and is not to be left out. In fact, I would argue that if you do not warn people, then you have not given the full picture of the gospel. Christ will be the judge, the jury, and the executioner, but the good news is that he can also be your savior. And this is what we proclaim. I think it's helpful to see Paul Take this in 2 Corinthians 5.18 and listen to the words that he says. He says, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. 
That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. This is what God has called us to do. We've been given this message, and the message is this. There's reconciliation that you can have with God. He can no longer be your enemy. He can be your friend, no longer be your judge. He can be your savior. And since we know this truth to be true, since we've experienced this in our own lives, listen, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. I just need to hear that. Some of us were so hesitant to share the gospel, and God's saying, I've made you my ambassador, and if you don't do it, who will? Who's going to step up? I have called you to do this on my behalf. You are my ambassadors. You speak on my behalf, and this, is, this language is so powerful. He is making his appeal through us. He is appealing to people, come, turn away from your sins. Come find life. Come find hope. And I listen to the language that Paul says here. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. This is not a casual message that we kind of tiptoe around and say, well, maybe you should think about it. We implore people. We persuade people. We plead with people. Come to Jesus. Don't die in your sins, right? Fear the one who can punish you forever in eternity, who can destroy the soul. Here, if you don't know Christ, can you just let God, just let God plead to your heart right now through me. Please, please, please turn to Jesus Christ. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Repent of your sins. See that there's no hope apart from Jesus Christ. See that he died for you. See that you can have forgiveness and grace. You have to turn to him and do it now. Don't wait. Don't hesitate. Let the day be the day of your salvation. You do not know if you will live another moment. The greatest part of this, here's the reconciliation that we proclaim for our sake. Listen, the love of God is written all over this. God loved you so much that for our sake, he made him to be sin. The perfect, sinless, spotless lamb of God became sin for us so that we might, listen, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Beautiful, beautiful exchange. All our sin for all his grace. Wow, listen, church, is this not a message worth proclaiming? Is this not a message worth heralding? Shame on us for being silent. That's what we proclaim. We proclaim our substitute. There is only one escape from the judge. That judge will forgive us. That is grace. That is mercy. Verse 43, to him all the prophets bear witness. Listen, this is the message of the entire Bible from cover to cover, that God will forgive sins, right? It begins with the problem of our sin. It begins with the reality that we have been separated from God. There is a a chasm we cannot cross, but in his grace, he has been working out this plan to come and rescue us, and the rescuer is here in Jesus Christ. He stands in our place. And because he does, the great judge will forgive us. He will punish him instead. All of the prophets proclaim this. Listen, Isaiah said, let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. 
Jeremiah said, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Ezekiel said, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. David in Psalm 103 says this, he does not deal with us according to our sins nor repay us according to our iniquities for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. And as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. That is our God. They all pointed to the one who would come to forgive sins. He would die in our place. And here's what it takes. Believe in him. Unmerited. Don't earn it. Don't try and be better. You can't. Trust him as your savior. And your sins are completely forgiven. So church, we plead, we persuade, and we proclaim because that is the chosen method of God to save. But just in case you think that somehow it all depends upon you, just notice this lastly, salvation works through the ministry of the Spirit. We do our part, God does his. I love this. This is so sweet. Verse 44, and while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. Peter's not even finished speaking. <laughs> and if you know anything about Peter, he likes to speak. All right, can you imagine Peter, hold on, hold on, go, go. what are you doing, God? I'm not finished yet. So let me, let me get through this, and then you can do your part. I love that. Listen, God doesn't wait for us to get everything perfectly right. God doesn't wait for us sometimes even to finish. God is working in people's hearts even when we don't see it. God has the power to grab the heart and, and through our words, the, the words of truth, the words of the gospel, God can be working so mightily in their hearts that we don't even need to finish. You know, Peter doesn't even give an altar call, right? He's just seeing the power of God firsthand in saving sinners. It's not ultimately about our persuasiveness. It's not ultimately about our ability. It's not ultimately about our technique or our skill. It is ultimately about the power of God's word and the power of God's spirit working through his faithful servants. Verse 45, and the believers from among the circumcised, you know, Peter's traveling with this group of Jews. Listen to what it says, who had come with Peter, they were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. They begin to speak, just like Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, in languages that they don't know. They're human languages, and they're speaking praises of God. They're extolling the excellencies of God. Acts chapter 2, remember the, the languages remind us that God's message of salvation was to go to the nations, to every person and every tribe and tongue and nation. And Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Do you see what God is emphasizing? They're no different from us. God shows no partiality. He saved us. He poured out his spirit upon us. Guess what he's done to these Gentiles who we thought were unworthy of God's grace? And then he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked him to remain for some days. 
This is the third, quote-unquote, Pentecost. If you go through the book of Acts, what you see is this. There are four Pentecost experiences. Acts chapter 2 with the the Jews in Jerusalem where they begin to speak in tongues and speak in different languages because the Spirit of God has fallen upon them. Acts chapter 8, remember, you've got to see the strategy of God here. Acts chapter 8, the Samaritans, those whom the Jews thought were too far away already, were cast off. All of a sudden, Peter and John show up. They lay hands on them. The Spirit of God falls on them as well. That's the second Pentecost. The third Pentecost is right here. We have a Gentile, and specifically, a God-fearing Gentile, one who is closer than a fully estranged Gentile. And right here we see that God is embracing this God-fearing Gentile. And in Acts chapter 19, in Ephesus, we see Gentiles who are not God-fearers, but those who fall on their face and embrace Jesus Christ. And the Spirit of God is poured out upon them in the same way that every other people group has been embraced by God's love and grace. And you see, this is not a normative experience. This is in the plan of God showing the outworking of salvation. That all these people who are once perceived to be irreconcilable to God's grace are now being embraced one group at a time. God is moving forward. God is grabbing them and embracing them. They become a part of the household of God. The Spirit of God here has been working in such a powerful way to produce conviction in the hearts of Cornelius and his family and his friends and the conversion of every one of these people believes in Jesus Christ and the empowerment of the Spirit. God's Spirit comes and lives within them. He gives them a new heart. He totally changes them. He gives them new desires. He gives them the ability to now defeat sin in their lives. He gives them the ability now to live for the glory of God instead of their own glory. But don't miss the most important aspect of the Spirit being poured out upon them is the full inclusion into the body of Christ. God has no secondary children in his family. He loves them all the same. And just make a note of this too. This is helpful for some of you. But notice that they receive the Spirit of God before water baptism. Water baptism, that later sign, is a sign of an inward reality that's taken place. The inward baptism of the Spirit whereby we are transformed by His power and His grace. Baptism is the sign of the the new covenant. And it is the visible identification with the people of God. It happens only after people put their faith in Jesus Christ. That's how you become a member of this new covenant. There is no other way to become a member of the new covenant other than faith in Jesus Christ. And so believers are baptized to demonstrate that they have been brought into the family of God. Peter says that God has embraced them just like he's embraced us. And I want you to notice this. Your baptism is, is a serious thing in the mind of God. It says in verse 48, and he commanded them to be baptized. Didn't suggest it. It wasn't optional. Loved ones, baptism is not an option for us. And the reason is because we are making a public, public statement of who and where our identity is found. And Jesus said these words, this is very, very startling, that if any of you will not acknowledge me before the Father, or before those, before men, excuse me, I will not acknowledge you before my Father who is in heaven. Baptism is a place where we joyfully proclaim that God has welcomed us. And Peter is acknowledging that God has welcomed them in. 
He stays with them for a few days. They invite him to stay, and surely that also is a mark that they have been accepted and embraced. He stays with these Gentiles. I'm sure he continues to instruct them, encourage them, and celebrate what God has done in their lives. So let me ask you this morning, how about you? Has God welcomed you into his family? Maybe today, maybe today, you are hearing God graciously calling you into his family. In his mercy, he opens his arms wide to you, offering you forgiveness and grace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. Will you surrender to him now in faith? He is Lord of all, right? You don't make Jesus your Lord. You submit to him as your Lord. That's the call of salvation. And if you don't know Jesus Christ, would you respond to him this morning by surrendering your life to him, by turning and placing your faith in what he accomplished for you on the cross? And would you receive the free gift of forgiveness of your sins and new life in Jesus Christ? This is how it works. Through the mercy of God, through the message of Christ, through the method of proclaiming, and through the ministry of the Spirit. And if you're in Christ this morning... It's not the job of someone else. It's your job and it's my job. We believe he is Lord of all, amen? We submit to him as Lord of all and we await the day where he will return as Lord of all. But until that day comes, may we ever be faithful by his grace and power to get out and boldly proclaim that he is Lord of all. Father, we pray that you right now would be stirring our hearts. And as we look at your word and as we hear you speak through the pages of Scripture, God, we see the authority of Jesus Christ. We see that he is indeed Lord of all. We see that there is no other name under heaven by which man can be saved. God, we believe what the Scriptures teach, that one day our Savior will return. He will come with the trumpet sound And when he returns, there will be many who will be caught unaware. There will be many who will be unsuspecting. And there will be many, Lord, who will wish that they had heard and believed in the name of Jesus Christ. So God, we pray that as we look at our lives now, as we contemplate, Lord, the reality of our own salvation, as we acknowledge that you are Lord of all in our hearts, in our lives, in this church, that God, it would be our heart's desire to live in such a way to put Jesus Christ on full display, to let the world know that the Lord of all wants to be their Lord and their Savior. God, we praise you that you have sent your Son We praise you that because of him, we can be at peace with you. We praise you, Lord, that in Jesus Christ, we see your love and your grace lavished upon us. And God, we want it to be our heartfelt response to you right now, to declare our love to you, to declare our devotion to you. So God, would you fill our hearts with gratitude? Would you fill our lips with praise? And may we not hold back declaring the excellencies of our great and mighty saving God. It is in the mighty name of Jesus, our Savior, we pray these things. Amen.